G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures podcast is Sasha Guggenheimer and Tom Heining. And Sasha is a marine biologist and underwater photographer. And Tom is a conservation ecologist. And we're going to be talking to Sasha about her humpback whale experiences and a little bit about humpback whale facts and biology. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having us. So humpback whales, tell us about what led you to the pathway of humpback whales being so important to you and why you love them so much. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, rem- I have this really clear memory from when I was about three of seeing a humpback whale and calf on TV. And just at the memories that I dropped everything, my bottle, the ro- remote control, which I guarded with my life because I was in charge of the TV even at three. And I just dropped everything and was absolutely mesmerized by this image of a calf and its mother swimming along a coastline. And when I was five, my grandpa asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I remember this conversation really well as, as well. And I was like, I'm not really sure. You know, some kids might say astronaut or fireman or any of those sorts of like quite standard replies. And he goes, oh, what do you love? And I said, animals and the ocean. And I was so sure at that age that they were my two biggest loves. And he goes, well, that's easy. You'll be a marine biologist. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and um, I actually ended up becoming an engineer first. Well, not completing it, but I started off doing that and then was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? You turn around into science and uh, yeah, ended up becoming a marine biologist. And um, I did my honours on Australasian gannets, looking at sex-specific foraging and taking blood samples of them. And I just found that work a bit intrusive to take the animals and get blood from their veins. I found that a little bit. It wasn't my cup of tea. So I presented my work at a conference in Hobart at the AMSA conference. And there was a few professors who were lecturing on acoustics. Um, humpback whales and fish I was like whoa fish make sounds because we really had this idea for so long that the ocean is silent Jacques Cousteau created a movie called the silent ocean because when we dive underneath we don't hear much except maybe a little bit of crackling but that's only because our ears aren't designed to hear underwater they're designed to hear in the air so it blew my mind and then I also realized you could learn a lot from animals just by listening to them so I was pretty gung-ho and passionate and I just emailed all these professors and I said I'll I'll make my way to your labs can I just hang out for two weeks? I won't get in your way. I just want to see what you do. And Rob McCauley from the Centre for Marine Science and Technology said he was coming to Victoria to release some noise loggers off Portland and he really needed a hand. So it'd be perfect timing if I joined him for that little mission. And um, yeah, we, we became really good friends and I ended up flying over to Curtin University and doing some work with them. And they had they just created a, a job to be a a technician well not a technician but a research assistant over there and help out with um, the acoustic projects that they were running so that's kind of how I got into 
into the research and, and the acoustic side of working with whales. And I just loved it so much. I thought it was a great way to learn about these creatures. You can understand they were trying to work out algorithms of pulling apart calls and working out how far away these calls are. And if you can get a bit of a direction on that, you can start to work out population as these animals migrate past the noise loggers. Um, so it's a beautiful, non-invasive way of, of gaining information on these sometimes very elusive, like pygmy blue whales species. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah, as a marine biologist myself, I kind of wish I'd forged that pathway. I think I just, you know, stuck under a pier and kept taking photos of fish. Which you're amazing at, and I think it's very much your calling. You're very good at it. (laughs) Thank you. So humpback whales, tell us, like, about their size, what they eat, and how they're different from other whales, and how you would spot a humpback whale if you looked at a photo of it versus a different whale. Oh, yeah. Yeah, humpback whales, by far, are the most charismatic of the whales, of the great whales out there. I mean, they put on these fantastic aerial displays. As I mentioned, I mean, their song is world-renowned. They're the only ever animal that's had an album released of their songs that's gone (laughs) multi-platinum. So when Roger and Katie Payne worked out that humpback whales were creating songs, they weren't just calls, they were actual songs with rhythms and choruses and all these little different sections that you need to compose a song. They recorded that and created um, an album and it was really a catalyst in the Save the Whale movement because at the time in the 60s, humpbacks as well as many other all the whale species were, there were commercial fisheries for them and their numbers were just being decimated. People were very worried that we would not, we would not have any whales left in our oceans in the next couple of decades. So their song is quite a big catalyst for saving the whales because people didn't realise that they could sing or vocalise or do anything. It blew blew people away and it made humans able to connect with them more but yeah so they have these incredibly long pectoral fins which makes them stand out a lot from the other whale species when they're doing their little round outs they have their name comes from or their common name comes from a little hump before their dorsal fin it's not quite noticeable unless you've really looked at them a lot but yeah there is this little fatty lump in front of the dorsal fin which gives them their name humpback and then as they roll they can often show their tail and they have these beautiful big flukes and the underside of their tail is how researchers often take photos and can tell individuals apart so you can also do that with their dorsal fins but the underside of their fluke is like the bee's knees it's a fingerprint So that's how we can tell the individuals in a process called mark and recapture. So you take a photo one year and then you take a photo the next year and you can put them together and say, oh, this is John and he's been returning to this site for the last 20 years. So females can grow maybe 16, 15, 16 metres in length. Males are a little bit smaller, 14 metres, and they can weigh up to 30 tonnes. So they're a really big animal and they make an incredible migration from, well, it depends on where they are in the world because humpback whales tend to go back to their carving grounds. So they form these discrete 
populations around the world. We've got the east coast of Australia as one population, the west coast of Australia as another population, and then you've got the Tonga, Tahiti whales, and so on and so forth around the world, usually following following the coasts of the continents. And then for us anyway, in the southern hemisphere and in Australian waters, the humpbacks go up and carve around uh, the Dampier Archipelago on the west coast, and then up around Harvey Bay on the east coast. And then that happens in winter and they give birth to their calves there, which are very, they're about four meters and they're suckling 400-ish liters of mum's milk a day to get really fat and they need to put on all this weight so they can make this huge migration down the whole Australian coast and all the way across that open water of the Southern Ocean to Antarctica, which is their feeding grounds. And they'll arrive there in summer as the ice sheets are melting. And as the ice sheets melt, all the krill that's been feeding on the diatoms, on the little algae underneath the ice sheets all winter, they're exposed and then available for the humpbacks and many, many other species of penguins and whales and all sorts of things to feed on. So they make their way down here and down there in summertime. And one thing that kind of owes to their success, I really admire the humpbacks because they've recovered faster than any of the other whales since the monitorium on commercial whaling, is that they're able to work together. They're really good at cooperating and working as a team. So when they get down there, they signal to each other, they use bubble nets where they release all these bubbles to spook the krill into a dense swarm. And then they all come up and lunge feed, opening their huge jaws and allowing the pleats under their throat to expand into these massive balloons and grab the krill. And then they use their big tongue, they close their mouths, they've got these baleen plates that's like bristles of a, of a really hard brush. And they push their big tongue against those bristles, pushing all the water out and then licking the krill off the back of their baleen plates. And that's how they ingest it. But then other species like blue whales, which have taken such a long time to recover, and some might even argue that they haven't recovered at all, since whaling, they use a lot of energy to open their mouths and grab these krill swarms. But if the krill swarm isn't dense enough, then it's sometimes they're not consuming as much energy as they're putting out. When the humpbacks can, can usher the krill into these tight swarms, so when they do open their mouth, they're actually getting the most energy for effort ratio from working together. So some scientists think that um, that might be a, play a big role in why they're recovering at a much, much faster rate than any of the other whale species. Yeah, wow. And so just on that, I just want to like kind of visualise them feeding with this bubble net. They usher all these plankton and krill. And is, do they also do small fish into these bubble nets? Yeah, yeah. So humpbacks have been known to feed on herring. And yeah, there's there are definitely other little animals that they they're opportunistically getting onto. In Antarctica, I think uh, the the main goal is the krill because it's so nutrient dense and delicious. But yeah, they can definitely feed on other little things. I love how you just called krill delicious. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> you should see them. I mean, I, I was really excited we were going to go this year, but 
people who've been down there say that they're huge. They're not these tiny little, you know, shrimp that we think of. They're like a big crustacean. Six to 10 centimeters long sometimes as well. So, I mean, I don't eat seafood personally, but if you like shrimp or prawn or whatever, and you want to take a huge mouthful of them, then you have a pretty good feed down there if you're a humpback whale, aren't you? Absolutely. And the cool thing about krill as well is that it's very high in iron and the ocean, its limiting nutrient is iron. So humpbacks play and whale species play a really important role of getting that iron from Antarctica. And then as they're coming on this migration all the way up to the tropics, they're pooping, they're dying, and they're allowing this iron to come back into the system and they're fertilizing the oceans on their way up. Wow. Now tell us, I want to hear, like, this is my favorite part about talking about sea creatures. Tell us about some of your favorite experiences you've had with humpback whales or just ones that have stuck in your mind. Like for me, I've only seen them once diving and that was in Tonga or snorkeling. That was in Tonga. But having a baby come up to my face and look me eye, like in the eye really close just to check me out it was mind blowing. And I, so I can't imagine what working with them and studying them must have led you to um, see. Yeah, absolutely. That is the coolest experience, isn't it? When you see these animals eye to eye and their eyes are so similar to ours and they're just very connected to you and you can feel that they're checking you out. It's it's a really humbling experience that and something that never gets old. <laughs> For me, there's been many. There's been many experiences. That's probably why I'm addicted. Um <laughs> But I think the curiosity, like you're saying, of the young calves is just so humbling how fearless they are and how they, you know, we would be working on the boats on the Ningaloo Reef and I remember a young calf coming up to our boat when our boat was in, like, just neutral. We were whale watching and then the whale comes up to us and she just starts rolling on her back and flipping her petrol fins at us. And as everyone's cheering on the bow of the boat, she just gets so excited. Like she gets really worked up by everyone's energy and she starts like porpoising and going back and doing more rolls and then she'll tail slap for us. And uh, it really felt like she was putting on such a show and that that connection of interaction goes both ways so as much as you feel that they're looking at you they're receiving that as well and they're very much interpreting how you're responding to them and I think another very cool experience was on the Ningaloo Reef as well Uh, we were doing humpback whale swims Um, on the Ningaloo Reef you're not permitted to swim with cow-calf pairs. It's really important to give the cow and the calf time to bond. As I mentioned, this migration that they need to do is huge. Making sure that mum and bub are very connected goes beyond surviving the migration to Antarctica. But then that first season, she teaches the calf how to fish and dive and hold its breath for longer and be part of the team. And after that season, she leaves, usually leaves the calf alone. So they really have just one year with their, or not even, yeah, let's just say a year with their mother to get everything they need to know about being a humpback. 
So the Ningaloo Reef has said no swimming with uh, calves. So I was going out to swim to check this humpback that looked like it was sleeping. And as photographer, you often go in first just to check that everything's like okay and that it'll be a good drop for your passengers. And as I got closer, I realised he was singing. He had these, often when they sing, they have their rostrum or their nose pointing down and their tail pointing up. And I could hear the sound, but as I got closer, the sound came in packages of of a ball about the size of a big grapefruit. And it hit me in my body, but in different locations. So it didn't come like a blanket of sound as we might be used to feeling that hit our bodies when you're in a concert or something. It comes in a wave. It came in these parcels and these ball packages and like one hit me in the calf and then it hit me in the chest hit me in the other arm and it was the strangest experience of sound and vibration that I've ever experienced and still what I love about it is no one can explain to me how the whales did that or what what that all meant yeah I guess because I was reading you know that they can sing and you can be they can be heard almost 30 kilometers away I think and I wonder if that is a way of them actually distributing that sound that far. Because, you know, you can imagine ripples, like it sounds like a wave, as you said, for 30 kilometers, that's a huge amount of energy. But if you could like direct it in little balls of sound, it'd be amazing. And so is it just the males that sing? Yes, it is the males that sing. And uh, I don't think anyone has been very conclusive into why that is. Theories are like sexual selection that's probably the highest theory up there is to impress the ladies but yeah it just seems to be the fellas that do the singing <laughs> and they, they also have hot hits so um, i've just finished a beautiful book by um miss jenner who founded the center for whale research they do a lot of acoustic monitoring and they found that like the most popular song will often be featured by more males so you might hear at the start of the season you know maybe the the biggest, strongest male has each whale's different song. And then the biggest, strongest male, the others will start sort of copying and be like, oh, this is this year's number one whale hit. And wasn't there, they also found that the whale songs would move from location. The, yeah, some researchers from um, University of Queensland found that often songs start on the east coast of Australia and then they move east to the Tongan population. And they move around the world like that. So it is interesting how these songs are getting passed, but it doesn't go the other way. Because Australians are pioneers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're very interesting. Maybe there's, there are some like Tongan whales that come for a road trip up the east coast of Australia. Some of the lads, they're like, oh, yeah, schoolies, let's go to Australia, bro. We'll go up the east coast. And they go up like, oh, my gosh, these tunes are so awesome. And then they take them back and then they are the most attractive males for that season because they are the most beautiful modern song. Wow. That's, and so you think it's Australia that has the, the song first? Yeah, so this is research from the University of Queensland that said that east coast of Australia starts with the song and moves it towards Tahiti, that area, that population. But I'm not sure what happens with the west coast and the other ones. I heard the west coast has said that they they start with the first song and then the east coast copies. Yeah, that's what I heard. (laughs) The west west side is the best. Yeah. I I know that. (laughs) 
Yeah. Ah, oh, that's so cool. And are there, so are there any facts, cool facts about humpback whales that you think are really amazing? Yeah, I just think they're such cool animals. There was a paper released a few years ago showing humpback whales were highly altruistic. So I think it was Pittman who observed male humpback whale protecting a seal from a great white, or from orcas. And the the humpback whale put the seal on its back and then began to swipe at the orcas to get them away from the seal. And they were really excited about observing this because a lot of the scientific community believe that altruism is reserved to humans, looking after species that aren't our own. So, yeah, this paper was quite interesting to show that humpback whales are definitely altruistic and they look after other species other than their own young. They do have those long pectoral fins are amazing for swatting off orca. And we have been in the position, Tom and I both, where we've watched orca attacks on humpback calves off the Ningaloo Reef. There's a pod there that come to hunt the humpback babies. And it can be quite an intense thing to watch, but often the humpbacks come out on top by bringing the calf up onto their pectoral fin. And then if they've got an escort, then they usually sweep. The other escort comes up and they push the calf up onto both their backs and then they use their outer pectoral fins to swat off the orca and their tails as well to, to really get to the orca. And they ca- their tails and their pectoral fins are covered in barnacles. So when they're slashing, it's like using knuckle dusters. It's not a, like a rubbery, soft surface. It's covered in these rough barnacles. So you don't really want to get swatted by the tail or the pectoral fin of a humpback whale. I mean, these peck fins can be more than three metres long as well. So that's like a, that's a really good right or left hook that you're going to throw. Yeah, apex predators are traditionally pretty, pretty good at looking after themselves and don't want to come across harm. Don't want to get harmed if they, if they can help it. So... If there's too much of a fight being put up by the humpbacks, then the orcas will often lead them to it, won't they? Look yeah. for an easier meal. If anyone wants to go diving or snorkeling with whales, what should they do? Where should they go? And what are some key rules? Well, I think it's beautiful to watch whales from a boat. So if you would like, if you're in Victoria and you're listening, uh, Phillip Island run whale watching tours. Also upper off Eden, there's whale watching tours where you can go out in the boat. And just going along our cliff lines in, in the right season, then you've got a chance of spotting orca, southern right whales and humpback whales. So very cool um, if you want to see them on foot or on boat. Um, As for snorkelling with them, I think I would recommend going to see them on the Ningaloo Reef. The rules and regulations have just been so well managed up there for the whale sharks and now for the humpback whales. There's been several years of trials before the permits were given out and the season was considered, what am I trying to say, like an official swim season. And I, I really feel that giving the cow calves a chance to bond and not be swum with is quite important. And it still happens from time to time that you're swimming on the back of the reef and a cow and a calf comes past. That's, they're very curious animals and you're up there 
in mid-season, everywhere you look, there are blows of whales. I mean, the water is bubbling with whales. It's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you're just screaming every two seconds if you're really into it, like me. And it's very important to give them space as well. Like these animals are super inquisitive. They're really large. They're very capable of looking after themselves. Like I said, they have these amazing long pectoral fins that are covered in barnacles. We need to be giving them quite a lot of respect um, when we're swimming with them and just be aware that we are like little bits of seaweed. We cannot get out of the way quick enough if we put ourselves in a dangerous position with them. And they, although they are beautiful, altruistic and very, very gentle from what I've seen and experienced, there are times when you could spook a sleeping whale or something else spooks it. And um, I have seen people injured in Tonga specifically from getting too close to whales. Yeah. Listen to your guide. I think especially like Ningaloo is, is a spectacular place and Australians should be really proud of it and should visit it. And the guides there are, are phenomenal. And you just listen to what they say. There's really strict code of conduct to protect the whales and to protect people. Uh, I don't know of anywhere in the world where you're allowed to scuba dive with whales, but you obviously may have a chance encounter. Um, I have friends who work in South Africa who every now and then get visited by whales when they're diving and, and perhaps, you know, Tonga or Tahiti, but most of the world says no scuba diving. But I just echo Sasha's, Sasha's points there. Just give them space, listen to your guides and, and you're going to cry anyway. doesn't matter if you're <laughs> five, you know, 10 metres away from them or you're watching them from a boat. I mean, just to be in the presence of a huge animal like that, it just, it often does bring people to tears. It's pretty moving. And we're very, very privileged to live in a time and space where they exist again for us because our grandparents, they were pretty much hunted to extinction. 300 to 400 individuals on the east and west coasts left in their populations of Australia. And we've gone now from that to close to 30,000 on the east coast and over 30,000 on the west coast. So our generations now, or anyone that exists now and can see whales, we should be so thankful to the pioneers who helped stop the commercial hunting of them because our, yeah, our grandparents weren't as lucky as us. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, like leading towards the future every time, you know, you try and you donate to a cause about saving a specific sea creature or you sign a petition or you get even more involved. Yeah, you are laying the foundations for possibly great things in the future. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today, guys. And you guys are the kind of the leaders of the sun butter movement. And we discussed this in the previous episode as well. But give us another run through of what sun butter is, because it's an amazing product that's saving the ocean, which is so important, and especially for animals like whales and so forth, which rely on their food source being crustaceans and krill and so forth. So talk us a little bit through sun butter and then tell us where we can see your photography or any other work you've got. Yeah, so sun butter, sun butter skincare is uh, Australia's first plastic packaging free sunscreen company. So it's reef safe, it's vegan, which means there's no harmful chemicals in it that are going to um, be detrimental to the health of our oceans. There's a lot of research showing that common ingredients in sunscreen and cosmetics are actually harmful to marine ecosystems and marine life as well. So we we created this to um, yeah just reduce another stress on our oceans, which are having a really tough time with um, so many issues facing them. And you can find us at Sunbutter Skincare on the socials. 
or head to sunbutter.com.au to you know shop now or find the stockist nearest you and they we ship worldwide around australia and everywhere else i guess if you want to follow our own socials then we're both passionate conservationists and really uh, tuned in to what's happening in the wild spaces around australia and the world and we both love taking photos so if you want to tune into that my insta handle is sasha guggenheimer and you can find me at tom wildlife travel on the instagram awesome well thanks again for being on the show Absolute pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having us. So much fun, Matt. Thanks for, yeah, carrying us across two episodes too. No worries. Seagridge's podcast is hosted, produced and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram, Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography, and my webpage, mtunderwatermedia.com. If you've liked the podcast, please subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash podcast where you can help with a tiny donation for the running costs of the show. Production assistance by George McGrath and music by Dan Musil and his electrifying, non-electric, amazing slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear all about the Sydney Pygmy Pipe Horse with resident expert Andrew Trevor-Jones. It's been the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out. <laughs>